0: Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis, and you are watching a very special Tax Tuesday. I am not in the continental United States, and Jeff has been out on a cruise ship, and it's the holidays. So what we're doing is we're going to record a bunch of question and answer for you guys. I'm just going to go down a huge list today. I'm going to answer probably twice as many questions as normal, but I don't have Jeff to bounce things off of, so I get to just give you my opinion on things, which could be very dangerous. No, but anyway, I hope you're having a holiday, a great holiday season. We still have our accountants on, and professionals on, and support staff on to answer your questions. So you could still ask questions in the Q and A. Uh, you can even chat, although I would probably say go right to the Q and A if you have questions. I will not be able to see your chat, which I love to do. I love to go back and forth with people and communicate with you guys. It's just so much more fun. But I won't be able to do that today, so I'm just going to go through a huge list of questions. We are going to do like a a speed round. So let me just kind of go over a bunch of the questions we'll be going. I'm going to go through as much of this list as humanly possible. Uh, I'm not going to go for two hours or three hours. So I'm just going to start ripping through. I'm going to still target for an hour. But you guys know me. Sometimes I hit it. Sometimes I go a little over. All right. So in our last tax Tuesday, somebody was asking about staking. I said, I'd actually dig into it. And uh, we will answer that. How is staking crypto tax? And how does that differ than mining? So I'll go over that. When you gift over $15,000 a year to one family member, do you have to pay tax on it? We'll talk about that. What are the best ways for day traders to manage their taxes? We will discuss that as well. What is the best structure uh, business entity for a foreigner to own real estate rental properties in Florida? So a very good question. <laughs> we'll go over that. Then somebody says, can you talk about the three the 3.8 NIT, or Net Investment Income Tax in particular, who, which types of entities are subject to it uh, when you have it. It seems like some of the new regs coming out will make it tax applicable to pass-through entities and to income that would otherwise not be taxed. For example, two individuals are doing all their trading through a partnership, which is owned through by individuals and a C-corp. Can you cover the terminology of how pass-through entity applies here and who and where the net investment income tax might hit? When making an end-of-year purchase to write off against my taxes, does the purchase have to be made by December 31st, or can I do it in January? Sounds like they're, if I want it for this year, so we'll go over that. Hello, I live in Texas and invested in a syndication in 2020. I received the K-1 but never filed the state tax for Indiana. Do I need to file the state tax? Can I carry over the passive loss to next year, even if I don't file the state tax? Thanks. So we'll go over that. Uh, How do I pay tax on rental properties owned in Canada? I inherited properties in Canada from my Canadian parents. How do I pay taxes on those here in the United States? So we'll go over that. I am a full-time wholesaler and currently have the business as a C-Corp to avoid dealer status. Will I qualify as a real estate professional since I'm full-time majority shareholder employee materially participating in the real estate acquisition activities? Great question. We'll go over that. I'm going to sell my main residence and retire at my vacation home. I live in Los Angeles. How do I avoid or reduce capital gains taxes? I'm counting on proceeds from the sale to help fund my retirement. Good question. And we're going to answer that too. I'm a high income W2 individual seeking advice on how to reduce taxes using a CRT, CRUT, conservation easements, and other non traditional methodologies. Kind of an open ended question, but we'll get into that. Can I turn? I literally just grab all these questions right out of what you guys send in. And I like to just kind of rapidly shoot them, shoot through them. Uh, Can I turn a property that I acquire through a 1031 exchange into a primary residence? Great question. I will answer that or I'll answer that since there's not a week. I have a condo which was only rented out for nine months. It is on the market, but we've not found anyone yet. On my tax return, can I claim expenses for the entire year? Good question. So I'll absolutely answer that. If retired parents want to offload their rental portfolio to me, what is the recommended way to do so? Can they possibly defer their taxes? And what should I do set up to be as tax efficient as possible? Great questions. Living trusts. My siblings and I inherited our parents' home. We were advised to get a family trust for the property. What is the difference between the family trust versus a living trust? Should we do both? Again, great questions. These are really interesting. Will buying rental property make my EFC increase that I pay... For my kids in college, that's, uh, EFC. If you're not familiar is the ability to do needs based government assistance. I think it's grants and loans. Also, if I buy a rental property in an LLC, will I pass less taxes, pay less taxes than if I buy in my personal name? Really good questions. Can my, and you guys are going to notice we're going to bust through a lot of them today. Can my S Corp reimburse me for moving expenses and repairs made to my home based on the business percent use? Good question. My husband owns an S-Corp. I'm a sole proprietor. If we travel to Hawaii and conduct my husband's S-Corp annual meeting, which portions, if any, of the travel costs can be tax-deductible? These are just really good questions today. I don't know what it is with you guys, but you've been drinking your carrot juice or something because these are really intelligent, well-thought-out questions. If you're going to receive a large sum of money, how do you keep from paying extra taxes or face penalties when spending it? And Can an irrevocable trust protect my assets from taxes? This is interesting. I'm referred to you by Mike G. I think the main premise here is regarding taxes on receiving a lump sum of money or regarding taxes on receiving a lump sum of money. My question is probably the same or similar to most in the group, which is the best way to reduce the amount of taxes we will have to pay on the lump sum of money if I have an LLC or I have an LLC. So what are some tax reductions? And if you live in a different state, would it be a good idea to set up a trust or LLC in Vegas, Delaware, Wyoming to reduce the amount of taxes is having an irrevocable trust, the best asset protection for the lump sum of money. And then the rest of these are going to be if we have time. In California, how do you change the title of a house to a trust or land deed without causing an increase in the property tax? So that was a Prop 13, I think it's Prop 19 now. Uh, how can a, well, I think it's still 13, but they added some more. And I'll go over that, how can large capital gain and recapture depreciation be reduced? I received bad advice about selling an asset and made too much money this year as a realtor. (laughs) It's always a tough one, so those things go together. Buy hold property, how long do I have to hold to pay less tax when sold, 1031 exchange? Somebody says we withdrew money, oh, this is gonna be a good one, I see the 60 days. We withdrew money from an IRA to fund a real estate purchase with the intention of reselling the property within the 30-day window. The purchase took longer than expected, and the property resale will now not close until after the 60-day window, and the initial funds need to be paid back. I have access to another former company, 401 k and I'm exploring options of either doing a direct or indirect rollover, or even a withdrawal to bridge payback of the initial IRA until the property closes. What tax pitfalls or complications are created by doing the indirect rollover from the former 401k. Okay, so we're gonna just start busting through these. That's a good question. Boy, a lot of these are a little complicated, so I'm gonna not waste time on these things. I'm just gonna start blowing through them. How is uh, staking crypto tax? So the IRS gave a notice, uh, it's called its Notice 2014-21, if I'm not mistaken, and it covers things like crypto mining, in creating an, in uh, airdrops and things like that. So here's the best answer I can give you on staking. The IRS has not addressed it specifically. The AICPA has asked for guidance on this issue with a recommendation that they treat it like mining. Knowing what staking is, which is really putting your computer out there in the system to verify transactions and getting paid for it, that would be ordinary income in my opinion. I believe that it's going to fall similar to mining where you're going out and doing an activity to generate the the coins it's not much different than staking so i think it's going to be ordinary income the only other way that it could be treated is the creation of an asset if you create an asset then you wouldn't be taxed on the creation of the asset so it's possible but i think it's i would get like a five percent chance that they would treat it Staking is the creation of an asset without your activity because you are literally putting a machine out there and allowing it to be used to verify transactions. So you're verifying a transaction and getting paid. So I believe staking is treated just the same as mining. It's going to be ordinary income and depending on whether you materially participated will determine whether or not you have self-employment tax on it or old age disability and survivors. If you do, then I would tend to be putting these things uh, perhaps in another vehicle. But I mean, that's it's a topic for a different day. I would just say, how is staking crypto tax? I would say right now, unequivocally, it's going to be ordinary income. And until the IRS gives us any more guidance, you're really taking a risk if you decide to treat it as non-taxable. doesn't mean that you might not. You might say, you know, but when the IRS does come out, you don't want to be sitting there and get the, the three-year audit you know, for having done it wrong for a few years. I'd rather uh, it, under this case say, look, they gave us a notice. They've been very clear. If you're creating an asset, if you're creating the, the Bitcoin or if you're getting airdrops, if you do a hard fork, all these things are taxable transactions. The only issue is whether this is active and you're doing something different than just owning something to get the airdrop. You are doing an activity that's going to be treated as ordinary income. That's similar to some of the airdrops to your, your ordinary income as well. And then did you materially participate will trigger whether or not there's a self-employment tax on it. So like if you're a miner, there's no way I could see not actively participating unless you were like a owner in a company that did the staking or did the mining and you were a silent owner and somebody else managed it. That's the only way you're going to get around it. But if it's just you, I think it's going to be ordinary income, and I think you're probably going to be looking at paying a self-employment tax. So I would take, I would treat it that way and take action to make sure you minimize those taxes. When you gift over $15,000 in one year to family members, do you pay any tax on it? So you're talking about uh, the gift rules. Any individual can give $15,000 to an individual, and it is not something that requires a gift tax return. We all have a huge gift tax exclusion, like it's over $11 million. And we can give away eleven million dollars to people. If it exceeds fifteen thousand dollars in a year, we file a gift tax return saying I'm using part of that exclusion. So we all get the don't have to file anything, don't have to pay any tax on giving somebody up to fifteen thousand dollars a year. If you exceed it, like if I said, "Hey Matthew, I'm going to give you hundred thousand bucks this year," I would file a gift tax return. Matthew never has to pay tax on it. It's the giver that would have the gift tax. So you, they don't have to pay tax on it. You don't have to pay tax on it, but you also don't get a deduction. So if you really wanna give uh, t- family members money, I would have them work in your organization so you at least get a deduction for it. So you're not paying tax on the 15,000 because chances are, if you're giving somebody $15,000 a year, your, your tax rate is probably higher, right? So you might be better off saying, hey, why don't you do something with my business and I'll pay you and that way they're paying no tax on it and you're getting a deduction. What are the best ways for day traders to manage their taxes? So the term day trader gets thrown around. A trader in securities is somebody who plays the daily movements of the market and is a frequent and continuous user uh, or uh, uh, worker in that market. I say worker very deliberately because that's the way the court keeps going back as they keep saying it's a trader business if you're going to be a trader. And the reason that's important is because if you are a trader, then you can deduct 162 deductions uh, versus 2- 212. It's it, Am I an investor or am I an active trader business? And the, the best rule of thumb I can give you is it, you gotta be doing at least 750 trades a year. You gotta be trading on at least 75% of the market days. Anything below those, and they're gonna blow you right out. We've seen $15 million active traders blown out because they traded four months out of the year or inconsistently or held longer than a couple days. If you have long-term gain, you're going to get toasted too. So the, the way I look at it is I don't want to be in that realm. You're literally writing trader insecurities or a trader. You're filing expenses on schedule C and your income on schedule D. So there's no income. So you're running a loss every year, more than likely. If you want to deduct that loss against your other income, they make these mark-to-market elections so that you can so that you could take the ordinary loss and use it to offset other income. Again, it gets complicated quick, and I'm like, you are just putting a bullseye right on your forehead, saying, "Please audit the crap out of me," which could be way more painful than any better you know any benefits you're getting out of this thing. So, what I tell people is, look, don't fight with the IRS. Create two businesses, one that's a partnership that owns the underlying assets, and another one to manage that and do other activities, which would manage the entity. So let's say I put together an LLC tax as a partnership that has a, has a brokerage account. There's two things that get triggered. Number one, I could have that corporation owning a percentage so that I'm not paying the corporation anything. It's just making a portion of the revenue and, and it can use that to offset any of the expenses that it has. It can, it can, it's basically managing the enterprise. It gets to write off ordinary necessary business expenses. Uh, number two is uh, you could pay it a guaranteed payment. Like if you wanted, like, hey, I'm a pretty good trader, maybe not the greatest, but what I want to do is know that I'm getting $20,000 a year into the corporation. Regardless of the profitability, you would say, hey, I'm going to enter into an agreement and I'm going to pay it a reasonable amount of money. Based off of the size of the account, and I, you know, basically, could I hire somebody to run my business and manage this this LLC? Could I hire a third party? What could I pay them? And you know, thousand dollars a month is nothing, but it could be significantly higher. Most people aren't going to manage a a entity for less than you know. Getting you're probably looking around fifty grand or something like that if you're hiring somebody who's going to full time. So then it matters about the amount of the activity. So if I am going to do stock trading, I'm gonna probably blend it in with the rest of my planning. I usually have a real estate holding company. I'll have a securities company. I may even have an entity that's doing some loans or has, has, has assets that's doing loans, even friendly loans to myself on liens and things like that. But I may have an entity, a corporation that's managing them all. And that corporation owns a piece of the various entities On the trading activity, it needs to own probably a little bit greater piece depending on how much money is being generated in that trading entity. That trading entity would need to be taxed as a partnership so that the uh, management fees do not flow onto your 1040 because if they did, they would go on your Schedule A, as a miscellaneous itemized deduction. And if you've been watching this, you know that we did away with miscellaneous itemized deductions in 2017 under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So you wouldn't get zero deduction. You will not get a deduction if this is a disregarded LLC or if you're doing this in your name. So the only way you're gonna write it off really is if you're setting up a LLC tax as a partnership with the corporation as its manager and as a member as well. So sometimes you have it on as much as 20% uh, if you need help on that. I'll obviously reach out. It gets complicated quick, but trust me, if you keep it simple, you don't get molested by the IRS. If you do this crazy trader status stuff, you absolutely do. That's my experience, 23 years of doing this. What's the best entity for a foreigner to own real estate rental properties in Florida? So here's the deal. In the United States, uh, if you're a resident, if you're a citizen, you're paying tax on a, on all of your worldwide income, no matter where it's located. So whenever you, we always look at that, number one, if we have a foreigner that is not a resident of the United States, then they're subject to their local rules. So you're gonna have two things, the activity in the United States, and you have the activity as it relates to that particular country. There's only a couple other countries that tax worldwide income. So your chances are, you're not gonna have to report that income in your local jurisdiction. Instead, you'd be doing a 1040 nr in the United States, if it's a partnership, you'd be doing the partnership in the United States or an LLC tax as a partnership. You'd be doing it where it flows through to your 1040NR as rental income. You would pay a tax in the United States on that portion. You would take your, probably more than likely, you're not having to report it on your local uh, home tax return, depending on where you live. But if you did have to report it, chances are, if it's a major jurisdiction like you're in the uh, Europe or something, we probably have a treaty and there'd be a tax credit for the United States tax. And you would offset your local tax with that tax credit, depending on the treaty. So these are really facts and circumstances tests. So I can't give you a straight up answer because every jurisdiction is different. For example, Canada doesn't recognize LLCs. They tax them as corporations. Most places don't really care. They're like, hey, United States, do whatever you want pay tax in the United States on that income and we don't tax it but it, we would still have to find out so what's the best entity if you have rental properties more than likely it's going to be either in Florida for example you could do a land trust and avoid having an LLC entirely because you have asset protection for land trust uh, if it has a mortgage on it the land trust avoids the doc stamps on the transfer so you could avoid a pretty hefty tax bill if it's I don't have any mortgage and I just own it cash you could do an LLC and then a lot of this d- is determined by, do you have other rental properties and other jurisdictions and does it fit in with an overall plan? So uh, generally speaking, whenever you have a rental property, you're gonna want it to flow through because it's considered a passive activity, it doesn't have to pay social security taxes. We don't wanna change that, nor do we wanna create a double tax situation on rental property. So uh, chances are it's gonna be a land trust and or LLC. Capiche? All right. Can you talk about the 3.8% net investment income tax? In particular, who, what type of entities are subject to this? They're talking about pass-through entities now. And somebody said, for example, two individuals are doing all their trading through a partnership, which is owned by individuals in a C-corp. Can you cover the terminology of how pass-through entity applies here and who and where uh, net investment income tax might hit? So here's two things. First off, the net investment income tax 3.8 is on all Capital gains, interest income, royalty income, investment income of any kind. So you're going to, your dividends, your capital gains, all this is subject to the net investment income tax. If your income is over a certain level, I think it's off memory. I think it's 200,000 for an individual, 250 for married couple. And it doesn't matter really where it comes from as an entity. It's going to keep its nature with a small exclusion of if it's a S corp then they figure that it's a trader business and you are not going to have to pay net investment income tax on the profits that come out of an escort. What's being proposed right now in the Build Back Better is that all types of income are actually subject to the net investment income tax, but they increase the threshold to 400,000 or thereabouts. I haven't seen the final. Obviously, as I'm sitting here today, we only have it passed in the house. It may have passed by the time you watch this video. But, uh, you know, that provision is what we're looking at. So it's a surcharge on top of everything, which is why you hear people say capital gains rate, the top rate being 20%. A lot of people say it's actually 23.8 because if you are in the twentieth 20% capital gain category, you are necessarily already above the net investment income tax threshold because the 20% is really when you're over half a million dollars as a single person or close to 600 uh, married filing jointly. It's, it's really you, you, as you get up there in wages. So you're well beyond the threshold of that net investment income tax. So everything that's 20% is really 23.8. That's what they're talking about, but it's not subject. Uh, the net investment income tax is not assessed on uh, active profits, active income, your W 2 income, your uh, things coming off of like a K 1 from an S Corp. Those are not, not subject to the, to the net so they're talking about expanding it and making it and then just lifting that limit so keep your eye on that one but as of right now regardless of what you're doing if you're trading chances are it's going to be uh, assessed the only exception that I've seen I believe there's a possible exception if you are a trader in securities with the mark the market election but again you're doing daily movement of the markets more than 750 trades a year more than 75 percent of the trade days so if there's 200 20 trade days, you gotta have like 170 some days where you traded, you had trading activity. It could be a pretty tough hurdle to clear, but there's, it's possibility there. I know that there's been a lot of activity. Wish I could give you a much clearer answer, but there's some things up in the air. But as of right now, I think you'd just be paying that th- that 3.8 only if you exceed the threshold. So it's not on every dollar. It's it's it's, it's only when you get over a uh, single, again, I think it's 200 or married 250. When making a end-of-year purchase to write off against my taxes, does the purchase need to be made by December 31st or can I do it in January? So here's the rule. I assume you're talking about taking a 179 deduction or a 168K where you're doing bonus depreciation on something that you purchased and put into service during the tax year. So there's your answer right there. You have to purchase it and you have to put it into service During 2021, if you want the deduction, here. That's how it works. Cash basis, taxpayers, that's what we're doing. I can't see it being that different uh, even for accrual, but you're buying it, putting it into place during the year to, to take advantage of either of those two provisions I talked to you about, 179 and 168K. So you actually have to take delivery of it and put it into service. So it can't be, I think if you like took it and had it, and it was in a warehouse, potentially you could do it, but it's much, much, much easier depending on what you're buying. Like if you bought an airplane or something like that and you wanted to accelerate from seven years to take a big chunk, you got to put it into service during the year. It could be one day, but you still have to put it in service. Or if you're doing Airbnb on a property, technically it's not a rental if it's seven days or less average usage. So if you buy something in December, you close on a property, you Airbnb it, one time or made it available for Airbnb, chances are you're going to get that deduction as long as you can prove that you put it into service and made it available for use. This comes up all the time, by the way, guys, people especially that are rehabbing properties and trying to put something into place before the end of the year. I just talked to somebody who it's it's not going to be ready. They're not going to be able to close on that property till January because the, the construction went a month over. They would have been able to put it into place. They would have been able to get people in it but the construction delays cause them to go into another tax year. There's nothing you can do. It has to be in service. Hello, I live in Texas invested in a syndication in 2020. I received a K-1, but I never filed the state tax for Indiana. Do I need to file the state tax? Can I carry over the passive losses to the next year if I don't file the state tax? Uh, you still get the passive losses on your federal, no matter whether you file a state tax or not the question is whether you're filing the state tax or the syndication. So they could choose to do it. I forget the precise term. It's like a consolidated return or something like that, where they're filing on behalf of the syndication and they take care of that, or whether you're required to. If they don't, then you're required to file a state tax. But if you don't owe anything, then there shouldn't be any ramifications to it other than you file a late return. Just make sure you you, you you still do it. You don't lose anything if you don't. You don't. But you know you want to be able to to document those losses and carry them forward. So I would just talk to your accountant about perhaps filing a a, a late return in Indiana if you're required to file the return in Indiana. If you had income there. So a lot of people are probably scratching their head, going, "You're in Texas. Why would you file in Indiana?" Sounds like there's Indiana property and Indiana income thus you're supposed to file an indiana uh return it's just does the partnership do it if it's a syndication like an llc taxes a partnership or an ll or a limited partnership syndication then they sometimes do it it's it's up to the syndicator to decide whether they're filing it or whether you're doing it and again i can't remember the precise term of art god i want to say a uh, consolidated return but I, I think that's wrong i think it's another term but it begins with the c how do I pay taxes on rental property owned in Canada? I inherited properties in Canada from my Canadian parents. How do I pay taxes on those here in the United States? So it's kind of weird. Canada or the U.S. accepts Canadian LLCs. So if you have a rental property, you may have it in a Canadian LLC, but the U.S. still charges you tax on all income generated from any properties anywhere in the the world. So let's say that You own a property in Canada. Canada is also going to assess. The Canadian Revenue Agency is going to assess a tax on your income in Canada. More than likely, the U.S. is just going to give you a a tax credit. I I know we have a treaty with Canada. I believe that is giving you the tax credit. Uh, I haven't pulled it out and looked at it. You obviously you're going to you're going to want to have a Canadian accountant handling the taxes in Canada and a United States accountant handling the taxes in the United States. If you want somebody that can do both, you're probably looking at somebody who's in a border state. I have a really good accountant in British Columbia named Harv Mann that I could send you as well. Uh, or you can look him up, Harv Mann, kind of an unusual name, British Columbia, but he knows US taxation and Canadian. And uh, you can make sure that somebody who understands both is looking at it, but you wanna make sure that if, if there are taxes owed in Canada, that you are getting a credit here in the United States. Another one, I am a full-time wholesaler and currently have the business as a C-Corp to avoid dealer status. Will I qualify as a real estate professional since I'm full-time majority shareholder employee, materially participating in the real estate acquisition activities? So you wanna avoid dealer status and you wanna be claimed as a real estate professional. So first off, if you're a wholesaler, you're not a dealer. A dealer is somebody who buys properties and sells them. So unless you're buying these properties, closing them, And then selling them you don't have to worry about it but you're in a c corp anyway so it makes it a moot point the question is whether that time uh, will allow me to qualify under 469 c7 and make my real estate activities and all my rental activities change them from passive to being ordinary non-passive losses so if i take lots of depreciation can i offset all my other income with it and that's where you have to be a real estate professional or an active participant in real estate, but the active participant is $25,000 a year max and it phases out when you get over $100,000. So if you're under a hundred grand and your losses are below $25,000, you don't even have to care about this. You automatically get it if you are managing the manager, like you're the one who's hiring the property managers or whoever it is on your rental activities. But can we include the time that I'm working for a C-corp in my computation of the 750 hours? That's the big question. And the the, the two prongs for real estate professional is prong one is I have to be engaged in a real estate activity for 750 hours a year and more than 50% of my personal service time. So if you are in a C-corp and you're doing the acquisition activities, does it qualify as a real estate activity? And it's pretty broad. It's construction, reconstruction, development, redevelopment, brokering, transactions, construction, all these different things go into the, hey, is it a real estate activity? What it really comes down to is, is it buying and selling? And are you involved? If the answer is yes, then you get to count the time as long as, you ready? You're a 5% or greater owner of the company. So it doesn't matter whether it's your properties or somebody else's. For example, if you're a broker and you own 10% of your brokerage and you're spending, you know, 2,000 hours a year helping other people on their properties, you still count that time under prong one. Prong two is material participation on your real estate. And we usually do an aggregation election to treat all your real estate activities as one. And uh, are you a material participant? There's seven different tests seven different tests on material participation the most easy one is if you self-manage you don't have to really care about hours as long as you're nobody else is doing substantial activities but if you have a property manager then you're going to fall into one of the next two tests which is you do more than 100 hours and if you're married it's you and a spouse combining all your time on your real estate more than 100 hours and 100 hours is more than anybody else spent on your properties If you have like a bunch of properties with the same property manager and you're worried that they're over 100 hours, then you would go to the next one, which is 500 hours and we don't care what anybody else does. And uh, 500 hours is again, cumulative between you and a spouse and it's your management activities. It's not just going out and trying to buy properties, it's management activities. And if you're managing your real estate, then you count all that time that you're working on those properties, working with contractors, working on, the management of those properties whatever you're doing with those properties you can add that even traveling to those properties if they're you know depending on where they're located it gets it gets into where you start adding these things up all right so the answer for you is yes you get to count that so can you can you count that time yes as long as you are a 5% or greater owner i'm going to sell my main residence and retire at my vacation home congratulations i live in los angeles california how do i avoid or reduce capital gains taxes I'm counting on the proceeds to help uh, from the sale to help fund my retirement or our retirement. Sounds like it's a married couple. So there's two things that we're going to look at. Number one is, is this your primary residence? And did you live in it two out of the last five years? Was your primary home ever a rental property before? Is there any disqualified use as a result? But let's assume that you bought this, you lived in this house, it was always your house, and you're selling it. As long as you, you could actually rent it for three years and sell it up to three years, I should say, uh, as long as you lived in it two of the last five years, you get a $500,000 exclusion. It's section 121. So, hey, I bought my house for 200 and now I'm gonna sell it for 600, which that's, let's make it California. I bought it for half a million and now it's worth a million. I would pay zero capital gains taxes. The 121 exclusion is only capital gains. So if it's been a rental property, you make it into a rental property, the uh, recapture is never included. So you still always pay your recapture. But you can use, get this, 121 and a 1031 on the same property. So let's say that uh, I'll give you a very real situation. You bought it for half a million dollars and now it's worth 2.5. You bought it 20 years ago and it's just exploded in value and you have a $500,000 exclusion, which will mean that you're gonna pay tax on uh $1.5 million of gain which in California, means probably 13% plus 23.8. So you're going to be paying you know, 35, 36% tax on that money, which sucks. So you're going to have a huge tax bill. How do we avoid it? You know, half a million dollar tax bill. So here's how you avoid it. You move out, make it into a rental property, and then you 1031 it. Remember, you're going to use this money to live off of. So um, what I'd probably do is sell it avoid all the tax and then refi the the replacement property, and make sure it's income producing property. If you wanted to buy like your dream house, rent it for a little while and then move into it, you could do that too. And then you could sell the second house as long as you lived in it for two years as your primary residence, you could avoid the, the gain on that one too. So sometimes people play a little hopscotch, but uh, if you want to at least get the $500,000 exclusion as a married couple, you could do that pretty easily under this scenario. So you avoid all the capital gains. Assuming it's never been a rental, then you could pretty much wipe it out depending on your scenario. I am a high income W-2 individual seeking advice on how to reduce income taxes using a CRT, CRUT conservation easements, and other non-traditional methodologies. So first off, W-2, a lot of people, uh, a lot of accountants see a high W-2 and they're like, oh, there's not much we can do there absolutely is something you can do. You can always just give your money away to charity. You can even set up your own charity and give it away to it. So we tend to go to the charitable realm or we create losses uh, that become ordinary losses generally in real estate by having somebody qualify as a real estate professional or having their spouse qualify as a real estate professional. Other things you could do is reduce your income. Uh, I mean, again, it's always going to be like a charitable giving issue, but Instead of giving, what if you invested in a conservation easement where you're taking a piece of property and its best use might be worth five million, but you're buying it at its develop, like at its regular fair market value before you're doing all the development. And then you're going to give away that development right to a charity. So you may buy into it for two million and you may get a, a you know, $4 million deduction and you're sharing it amongst the folks that invested. So. You know, in that type of scenario, I might get a, I might invest a dollar and get a $2 deduction. Is that worth it for me? No. If it's a $4 deduction, now we're talking about something. So again, let's say that I have a uh, conservation easement that's doing a four to one. Uh, if I put a dollar in, I get a $4 deduction. Then just depending on what your tax bracket is, like if you're in the 35% tax bracket, multiply that by four. That would be what is that one twenty? I can't even do it. <laughs> I'd have to get my little calculator out. So four times three and four times twenty. You know, I got twenty and I got one twenty. So I'd have a dollar forty. So for every dollar I put in, I'm saving a dollar forty. So it costs me a dollar to get forty cents. Is what it really boils down to. The problem with conservation easements, I'll just say right off the, the bat, I do like them. And they do work when they're done right. Like that four to one, you're probably going to be in a safe realm, but it is a listed transaction right now. The IRS is mad at them. And there's been proposals to limit conservation easements. It's not in any of the uh, Build Back Better plan anymore, but it was. It was two and a half times. So if you give a dollar, you can get a 250 deduction. It's basically breaking you even. That's what they're trying to do. As it is right now, that does not exist. But just know that the IRS is mad that you can give a dollar and get a buck 40 back from the government but you could do that on a conservation easement even with w-2 income it is limited to i believe it's 50 percent of your adjusted gross income so you can get that the other route is that crt what you're doing is you're giving up an asset to the charitable remainder trust with the remainder beneficiary being the charity and it has to receive at least 10 percent of the value of that uh, asset when you pass. So they do a little test and they they figure out either it's going to be a term of years or it's going to be your lifetime that the asset then goes to a charitable beneficiary. And the charitable beneficiary can be a private foundation. It can be a 501c3. It could be your 501c3. But let's say I give it a million dollars and you're talking about a unit trust, but there's also an annuity trust, a CRAT. Where you take back an annuity, let's say that you gave it a million dollars, and you get an annuity at eight percent for t- for twenty years or whatnot. So you're going to get eighty thousand dollars a year in theory that you're going to get as income, but your deduction might be, you know, twenty thirty percent of the amount that you put in. So you might get a three hundred thousand dollar deduction for putting the million dollars in if you give it cash, you would get a $300,000 deduction in year one to help reduce your W2. But then in year two through, you know, 20 or whatever, whatever the length of that annuity is, you're going to have an income hitting you. A unit trust is just a fancy way of saying, Hey, if we have a asset, we're going to give it a unit trust amount. Usually it's five to, to something percent where it's based off of the income and it's based off the production of the asset. But again, the charity is going to get the asset at the end of the day. And if the asset grows, there's a good chance the charity is going to get more than the million dollars or $2 million. Say again, I say I put assets worth a million dollars. I might get less of a deduction. First off, if it's the asset versus if it's cash. So I might get a 10% deduction. And then at the end of the timeline, the the charity is going to get something that may be worth more than the million dollars I put in. So you have to be comfortable with that. Uh but those work. And uh I, I tend to like people just doing a public charity and doing whatever charitable activity they enjoy, doing that as a family, and then you could fund it. The only things we have to be aware of there is whether or not you're a public charity or you revert to a private foundation. You actually have a five-year window or you get a grace period. But I like those types of deals, especially if it's a one-time funding where like, hey, I have a big income hit, I got big bonuses, and I want to make a deduction, a big deduction. And I'm going to carry, like, I know I'm not going to use up the entire deduction in just one year. I'm going to be limited, depending on how much I put in there, uh, to how much I could write off. And maybe I'm carrying it forward for a few few years. So we just kind of do the math on those. But, yes, as a W-2 high-income earner, you can absolutely use these tools. It's just crunching the numbers and making sure that it meets your objectives. And, of course, a CRT can, can You could have a traditional 501c3 as the beneficiary, it could be your church, it could be your university, it could be an organization. As long as it's a qualified 501c3, then uh, you can make it the remainder beneficiary. If you don't know, it is possible to draft these things up and add the remainder beneficiary in later if you need the deduction for this year. Can I turn a property that I acquire through a 1031 exchange into my primary residence? So here's the scenario, you bought a property, via 1031 exchange so you moved the basis of the old property or properties into this property and you love it so much that you want to move into it and live in it can you do that the answer is yes you can in fact the code specifically addresses this under section 121 when it says if the property was a 1031 exchange property you have to wait five years before you can use the 121 exclusion, which is the 250,000 or $500,000 capital gain exclusion. So uh, in English, I have an exchange property. I rolled a bunch of basis into it from an old property. I'll give you guys a scenario. Hey, I bought a property. It was worth 100,000. It was now worth 500,000. I rolled uh, via 1031 exchange that property to a new property. That was a great rental. That I looked at and I said, you know what? I really like this property. I want to move into it. So I move into it. Five years later, it's worth a million dollars and I say, I'm going to sell it. The big question is, what tax do I owe? Do I get the 121 exclusion? Can I even do this? The answer is yes. I get to use the 121 exclusion. I have a period of disqualified use. The period before the property became my primary residence, there's a period of disqualified use under 121. So I'm going to have to do a ratio of how much time did I own the property? How much of the time was it used as a rental property versus how much of the time was it used as a primary residence? If you rent it before you sell it, you don't have to count that time as less as, as long as it's less than three years, but we look at anything before it became a primary residence and that's period of disqualified use that could possibly affect how much of that gain is allowed to be used, uh, or how much of the exclusion I get to use against that gain. So it typically goes against the amount of the gain that I get to attribute to the personal residence and I get my full exclusion. So I'd still get, let's say it was half and half and I had a million dollars of gain and I used it, disqualified use half, lived in it half. At the end of the day, I still get my $500,000 exclusion because it's half of whatever the amount is. So I had a million dollars of gain, half of it is 500000 I get to use my $500,000 exclusion as full if I'm married. I know this stuff gets a little bit brain twisted, but just play along here. You can convert it. Just know that you're going to have to do that calculation of non-qualified use. You still get to use your exclusion and it's full so long as that amount of gain is attributed to it. And uh, just remember that if it is a 1031 exchange property, you're using the basis of the properties that were the first properties you had that were sold that you exchanged and it could be multiple exchanges by the way. It's like, you could go back, Hey, I exchanged property A to property B and then I sold property B and bought property C. Then I sold property C and bought property D. I made that into my primary residence. Your basis is way back there in property A to figure that out. So, uh, anyway, and then we'd also have some recapture. So we just have to do the math, but yes, A property that you acquire through a 1031 exchange can be turned into a primary residence. You have to close, though, as an investment property, and then you'd convert it at some point in the future. right. I have a condo, which was rented for nine months. It's on the market for rent, but we've not found anyone yet. I'm on tax return. Can I claim expenses for the entire year, correct? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you didn't personally use it more than 14 days or 10% of the time, then it's a rental property in whole, 100%. If you used it or your relatives used it during any of that time, then we might have a period, it exceeded uh, 14 days or 10% of the time. So if we had it nine months, what would that be, 270? So 27 days, you'd have to use it for, I'm just doing 30 times nine. And then you would say, hey, 10% of that amount is what we would look at as our threshold for whether or not we have to worry about the personal use Based off of your facts, I don't even think we have to consider that. You get to write off 100% of the expenses for the year because it was available. The way the rules are is it's available for rent. That's what we care about. Uh, if it's not available for rent, you don't lose the expenses. You just can't create a loss. So if I get a property and it's vacant and not available for rent, or even if it is available for rent but it's vacant uh, for a period of time, I don't get to create the loss necessarily out of that one. So I do want to be looking at that. Just as soon as it's, as long as it's available under these circumstances, you're going to get it. All right. If retired parents want to offload their rental property to me, what is the recommended way to do it? Can they possibly defer their taxes? They says significant capital gains. And what should I do set up? So number one, rental properties. I mean, technically, if they want to sell it to you, I believe you could still even 1031 exchange it, but then they would own it. So we, we probably wouldn't want to do that. Uh, if they want to just get out of it and just have an income stream, I would do an installment sale. So one of the easiest things you could do is say, hey, mom, dad, let's spread out the capital gain hit and s- some interest and returning your basis over a, you know, let's say that they're in their 70s and their life expectancy is 20 years or something along those lines, 15 years. I would just pay it out over that period of time. Technically, I think you could go longer. The IRS may look at it saying that there's a, As long as there's not a skin, uh, which is a self-canceling installment note where the note cancels, I think you'd be fine doing it over a longer period. But what you're really doing is saying, mom and dad, elect installment method. I will pay you as the income is coming in. You're not having to come up with a whole bunch of cash. Your parents still pay capital gains, but they're spreading out the long-term capital gains, the recapture on the depreciation. Over a longer period of time, you do have to charge interest. You can use federal AFR rates, which are really low, which is the minimum amount between related parties. It might be 2% to 2.5% two or something like along that. So all of that gets baked into the pie. You run a spreadsheet or your account runs a spreadsheet saying, here's what your, re- here's what your tax implications are. Here's how much income is return of your basis, which is taxed at zero. Here's how much of your income is recapture which is tax zero to 25%, depending on your uh, bracket. Here's what portion is long-term gain, which is zero to 20%, depending on your bracket. Here's what portion is interest, which is ordinary income. And you just have your parents included over a longer period of time. That might be the easiest route for them so they don't get a significant tax hit in one year. And it also makes sure that, again, rather than just giving it to their kids, This is a way that they can get financial reward for owning it, and then all the risk goes to you. So they may say, hey, we want out. We just wanna know this is what our income is. You could encumber those properties too with that note. You have some other possibilities. We have some other tricks up our sleeve with regards to whether or not you wanna do the installment note. Like you could just say, hey, we wanna pay the tax, but we wanna have an income stream for the rest of our lives. Technically, they could even opt out out in that situation, but they say, hey, but I wanna get a, a revenue stream from their kids. There is something called a deferred sales trust that they could possibly do too, which is you put the properties into an LLC. The LLC, you sell to a deferred sales trust, which is a uh, an irrevocable trust for the benefit of their kids. And uh, before you do that, you step up and basis the, 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 uh, the property, or excuse me, you wouldn't do the step up and basis on the installment note. They would just receive that income over time, the same thing we're talking about. But then you could sell those properties. You could step up the basis on those properties and sell them all if you wanted to go get rid of them. And there's no tax on it because of the step up in basis when you did it to the deferred sales trust. So that one probably just blew a few of your guys' minds. But the accountants out there are going, oh, yeah, you could do that. And they do do that, especially when you have big, huge companies or something where the the taxes would just be massive. And really what they want is a the family ultimately wants to liquidate that asset and make sure it still goes to the kids, but they don't want to bury the parents with massive tax liabilities. That's how you do it. Living trust. My siblings and I inherited our parents' home. We were advised to get a family trust for the property. So chances are you guys inherited it together and you want to keep it in the family, but you're a little bit worried about each person giving up their portion What we really get into when you hear these terms, family trust, living trust, land trust, dynasty trust, they're all the same type of document. It's There's a a grantor, there's a trustee, and there's beneficiaries. When you do kind of an irrevocable family trust, you're saying, hey, it's going to be for the benefit of the descendants of mom and dad. It's usually what you do. It's like, hey, we all get the right to use it. And you're putting it in a trust and saying, nobody gets to sell that. It doesn't get Eaten away in a divorce of one of the people. If somebody gets into a lawsuit, they can't take it. It's just sitting there in trust, and you could set these trusts up for hundreds of years, and you throw the property in it, and it just says the trustee manages it for the benefit of the beneficiaries. It's actually pretty easy. If it needs money, that's the only hard part: is how, how do you how do you calculate that out? Are we going to rent it? Are we just going to? Are there other assets that we're going to throw in there to maintain that property? You're probably going to want to consider that before you do this. Hey, you know, do we throw some cash in there along with this? So that we never ever have to worry about losing this property out of our family. And what's the difference between those? Same type of trust, living trust is revocable, meaning that I can make changes to it during my lifetime. If I did a family trust, they're probably talking about an irrevocable trust that holds the property for the benefit of a some category of people. So it could be all three siblings and their descendants or you could say it's one third, one third, one third. If there's three kids, but it's it stays uh, what we kind of call per stirpes, which is it stays, in each leg is one third, one third. But you don't want to allow someone to sell, so that uh, you don't have somebody selling off a, a portion of the of that property. Or now all of a sudden you're sharing that property with somebody you don't even know, or it gets eaten in a divorce. So you you create these typically as an irrevocable trust. You make sure that that property is sitting in it. Uh, managed by that trust uh per uh, again usually you're going to start these things off uh over 365 years and it just sits in there for the benefit of your of your families. Uh I like that personally. Uh living trust we still put those provisions in it by the way. A lot of times I tell parents especially if they have substantial assets make individual gifts of things that have sentimental value but hold the hold the rest of the assets in trust for the benefit of your beneficiaries. So if they need it, it's there but they can't just liquidate your estate and buy a bunch of Lamborghinis and go go nutty, you know, buy something stupid. So it sits there and it's for their health, education, maintenance, and support. That asset can still be used. All right, when buying a uh, rental property, will it make my EFC increase that, that I pay for my kids in college? The answer is it's it's included as an asset. It would be included as your income, but rental properties tend to offset their income with their depreciation. So there's a good chance you're not going to be paying any tax on it, but they will look at it as an asset. As to the effect, it should, you know, I I don't know. If you buy a million-dollar rental property, your chances are it's going to have a pretty major effect unless there's a liability against it. And I would say, how the heck did you buy a million-dollar rental property if you were doing the EFC anyway, you know, if you had that cash lying around? So it's kind of like it's considered an asset, but you're having to move one asset to another. And it's an asset minus liability liabilities still for that. So if I bought it with financing, chance there's it's going to have minimal impact. All right, if I buy a rental property in LLC, will I pay less taxes than if I buy a property in my personal name? Uh, it depends on the type of LLC. Generally, no, generally has no impact. LLCs can be disregarded for tax purposes to hold the real estate. Usually you get a lot of benefits from holding real estate. So we want it to flow onto your, onto your return. We like it going on page two of your Schedule E via partnership return if possible, because, uh, there's a few reasons for that. Number one, if you're ever borrowing money, they use a hundred percent of that income versus they use 75 percent. If it's on page one of Schedule E, that's if you're doing a conforming loan of a, a Freddie Fannie. That's just how they, their underwriting works as it is today but as for the taxation no, it's usually just flow through it doesn't save you anything now here's where it does save you tax money if you buy it through a charity you can apply for a real estate tax exemption but it wouldn't be an llc and if it's a rental property it would be a it'd be a, a entity in, within the uh, nonprofit. so if i had a 501c3 technically that's a corporation it can be an llc but please don't <laughs> 501c3 like th- those provisions actually say corporations and trusts the IRS finally came out saying yeah you could potentially do an LLC but i'm just telling you when they see it it's like wee wee, wee like they they don't know what to do with it so it's going to get a a different look see so just just do what's easy do that corporation if you put the real estate in it you want to get your exemption and then put it into an LLC but as an individual if you're just putting rental property in an LLC no difference it could possibly cost you more so like in my where i'm sitting right now in las vegas this is clark county if i put a property into an llc no tax if i take it out of an llc there's a tax so that's where it could hurt you versus your personal name so you want to kind of look at that what the way we get around it here is we just use a land trust and then we assign the beneficial interest and the reason you do that is if you're if you're going to refinance the property you don't want to have to pay Three or four hundred bucks to take a property out of an LLC that kind of stinks. And then the other way where it could hurt you is like in California, California, if you put a property into an LLC, you have doc stamps on the mortgage. You could be looking at a tax hit there. So you use a land, use a land trust to avoid that as well. If you are putting a property in Pennsylvania into an LLC, you're going to be paying a tax period. Pennsylvania is really, really strict about moving a property out of your individual name. If you bought it directly in the LLC, you're fine, and you're not getting any negative consequences. You get only the positive, which is the asset protection and the ability to have something separate from you. All right, can my S Corp reimburse me for moving expenses and repairs to my home based on the business percentage use? So first off, S Corp and you as an employee, you can qualify for a an accountable plan where it's reimbursing you as an employee for any of your expenses incurred as a business. Uh, it says that you're a sole proprietor, which, oh, excuse me, sorry, I'm looking at the next one. It says, uh, yeah, so you're the owner of the S Corp and can it reimburse you a portion of your home based on business use? The answer is yes. If you're using an administrative office, it's either, use either a room methodology or you use a total net square uh, net, usable square foot calculation usually is the best. Uh, One of those two is going to be probably closer to the 20% mark. And then, yeah, you can reimburse a portion, that percentage of your repairs, even house cleaning, even all your utilities, all that stuff starts to be reimbursable. A portion of it, just that portion, I use a spreadsheet to do those calculations, which I share out in my tax toolbox during tax during tax-wise workshops, during a lot of the asset protection events, I share that out, so I've, you know, come to those and you'll see how it gets used. But moving expenses are no longer a deductible expense, so it can't really reimburse you without having some taxable impacts. So like if I am military, I know I can still write off moving expenses. If the business wants to pay a moving expense, there's a good chance it's not gonna be able to deduct it because moving expenses are not deductible. But some accountants may just classify it as an employee expense and write it off. Anyway, I'm just saying that right now, moving expenses technically aren't a deductible expense to individuals for sure. Uh, to an S-Corp, it might be added in as compensation. But, again, it depends on the accountant. I wish I had Jeff here because he might tell me, no, we just reimburse it and forget about it. I don't know technically. I know what the what the rule is. But uh, it's going to really be up to your taxpayer. But yes, it could reimburse anything that's business related or done for the benefit of the business. So if you're moving as a result of the business, then it it can always reimburse it. It's just whether it's going to be tax free or not. My husband owns an S-corp. I am a sole proprietor. If we travel to Hawaii and conduct my husband's S-corp annual meeting, which portions if any of the travel costs can be deductible? All right. So this is where it gets really interesting. So first off, if it's just you and you're traveling to Hawaii, there's not a restriction on doing your meeting. It's just, if you ever get audited, they might look at it and say, was it lavish or something? I mean, you could, people go to Hawaii all the time for their meeting. So I would try to lump something else in with it while you're going to Hawaii. So for example, we do an executive retreat every year, pretty much uh, sometimes twice a year where we'll go to Hawaii, this the pandemics made it really difficult. We were doing it once a year for sure, but we plan on doing it more often where we do these executive retreats. You go there. When we do it, we set it up so that we have four business days, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, where we meet as a group for four hours and one minute each day to count it as a business day. Why is that important? Because if 50% or more of your business or more than 50% of your reason for going to Hawaii, which is counted by your days there, is business, then you can write off 100% of your travel to and from Hawaii. So here's how it works. You get a travel day for uh, that gets counted as business, and you have the business days, and you have bookended a Friday, Monday, on a weekend, you get to count the weekend as business days as well. So if I have a Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, I get to add in, in addition, Saturday, Sunday, plus two travel days. So I'm now up to eight days that are business. So can I stay in Hawaii another five days and not have to worry about having, losing my deduction for my airfare? Yes, I can absolutely do that. Now, if I'm there and I'm doing business days and personal days, technically, I can write off the hotel and meals on the days that I'm there for business. And then on the days that I'm there for vacation, I would not write those off. So to answer your question more clear, if you go there, what portions of the travel costs could be tax deductible? Depending on how you're setting this up, a hundred percent of the travel costs, the air could be covered and then a portion of your stay. If, You are going there and let's say you're only having one meeting day and you're there for a week, then you would not be able to write off the airfare, but you would be able to write off the one day that you're doing the meeting and deduct at least the meeting room or at least the, if if you're doing it at a hotel, the hotel room. So obviously it's better for you if you're able to get more business days and that's going to be really tough to do just to say I'm, I'm having a meeting people have done all sorts of analysis on this. There's all sorts of little things like, Hey, I'm going to set up a meeting. I'm going to go over financials on day one on day two. We're going to do forward projections on day three. We're going to go over mission, vision values on day four. We're going to do this. Just know that you have to spend four hours for it to be a business day. So what I would say is find other people that do what you do and meet with them while you're over there and get as many business days as you can. If you're into real estate, talk to real estate investors there, look at real estate and document it so that if you're ever questioned on it, you could say, I did have a profit motive on these days. Again, you go over 50% of the time, counting a business day, again, four hours, one minute. If I can show that 50% or uh, more than 50% is business, then I get to write off all my flight and everything. And frankly, nobody's getting audited right now. Doesn't mean they won't get audited in the future, but in the last few years, we've saw just almost none. Uh, i think we did 10,000 tax returns they're pretty close had less than a dozen audits last year it's just really 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 low your husband's escort by the way its audit rate is a fraction point zero two percent it's just really low really really low your sole proprietor a little higher like we got to be careful about you but the uh, escort probably not a problem that's where i would write it off all right if you're going to receive a large sum of money How do you keep from paying extra taxes or or face penalties when spending it? It depends on the source of the large sum of money. So for example, I receive a insurance payout from the death of a parent or somebody named me as a beneficiary. I don't pay any tax on that. If I get a lump sum that is uh, a loan, I I borrowed from a piece of property, no tax on that. If I sold off a bunch of crypto, then I would have capital gains tax on that. If I got a big lump sum, like a bonus from my work, or I got a distribution out of one of my businesses, I'm probably looking at ordinary income, possibly subject to self-employment tax. So all of those things have to be factored in. So I don't know enough, but how do you keep from facing penalties is you calculate the tax and make sure that you're paying it when owed. We have a pay-as-you-go system. We pay on a quarterly basis. There's lots of exceptions or safe harbors, but generally speaking, when you earn something, you should look at. You should talk to your accountant to make sure that you're um, treating it appropriately at that time, so you don't get massive uh, penalties. You, it's really hard to get hit on penalties if you file your taxes on time. And when I say on time, it means pay your taxes when owed and file extensions and file your tax returns by the end of the extension deadline. That's when it's actually due. So individuals filing your taxes by October 15th, make sure that you file your extension and pay any taxes due by that April 15th. Or if you earn it during a quarter by that quarter, if you file a tax return, your penalties are pretty insignificant. Penalties can be like, we just did this. I saw a penalty, on $10,000, uh, it was about a 100 bucks for uh, not paying something on a quarterly basis on time. It's not huge. It's usually one less, you know, one, 2%. And then the penalty for not paying, uh, you know, the interest that you're earning is really, you know, maximum. I think you're looking at about a 1%. But if you don't file, then you could get this 5% penalty and it starts to add up quickly. So, uh, and it can equal... Pretty big chunk. I think it's capped at twenty five percent, but it's still a pretty big chunk of that tax. So as long as you're filing your taxes on time, even if you didn't pay it, it's not brutal. So you know, so just make sure that you're reporting it appropriately, and you're going to be okay. Can an irrevocable trust protect my assets from class uh, from taxes? Yeah, there's things called dings and nings and all this fun stuff. I won't dive into too much of it, but the answer to your question is it can avoid a lot of state income taxes on federal income taxes. If you have capital gains, it could avoid the tax because it can be re it could be reinvested into that trust. But otherwise, no, it's going to be flowing down to a beneficiary or the trust is going to pay tax on it. So you're always looking to see who could pay the tax. Is it the trust or is it the beneficiaries or, is it defective for tax purposes so an intentionally defective grantor trust for example is when you set up an asset of irrevocable asset protection trust but it's still taxed to the grantor it's called an idiot and the individual who sets it up still pays all the tax on any of that income so you use it for example if i'm have a big chunk of asset that i want to make sure nobody can ever take i'm in a high-risk profession i name my spouse as a beneficiary and my kids it's a fancy way of I'm moving it out. It's still part of my estate. I still pay tax on it, but they're technically the beneficiaries. So if I get sued, somebody can't take it away from me. We've still got some questions here and I'll I'll keep busting through them. Uh, Somebody says, I think the main premise here is taxes on receiving a lump sum of money. What is the best way to reduce the taxes? We have to pay on the lump sum. I have an LLC. Uh, If you live in a different state, would it be a good idea to set up A trust or LLC in Vegas, Delaware, Wyoming to reduce the amount of taxes, is having an irrevocable trust the best asset protection on the lump sum of money and other assets. So let's kind of go through there. We already talked about lump sum of money in a previous question, but so we have to figure out where it came from. Where would I put it? If it's, again, if I wanna remove it from my personal realm, so that it's not gonna be subject to if I get into a car accident or if somebody sues me in my business, I wanna make sure that they can't come take this asset. I'd probably set up an LLC in a a place like Wyoming where my name's not listed on it. It's maybe ignored for tax purposes or it's gonna flow through to me as a partnership, depending on how I set it up, but it keeps it out of view. And I found that 99% of the asset protection really comes down to people not knowing what you have and being able to keep your affairs private so you're not just sticking it out there. Can it avoid taxes? It could avoid state taxes if you have a trustee managing those assets in another state and it's an irrevocable trust. So you can do that. I wouldn't be using an LLC at that point. I'd be using a domestic asset protection trust, like a Nevada asset protection trust. And I would have the monies managed here in Nevada by somebody. I'm not a trustee, but there's groups that do it. And you could avoid the state income tax on those. If it pays it out to a beneficiary though, they're paying tax on it regardless in their state. So it doesn't do as much as what you might think, but if you have $50 million, $100 million sitting there, it makes sense, right? If you have $100,000, probably doesn't. Is having an irrevocable trust the best asset protection for the lump sum of money? Uh, if it doesn't make you insolvent, a domestic asset protection trust is extremely effective against outside parties. So long as they were not a creditor at the time that you set it up, as long as it doesn't make you insolvent, because we have a 10 year clawback on bankruptcies. So if you are just, hey, I have a bunch of money coming in and I want to make sure nobody could ever take it from me. And I'm not worried about us, you know, doing something for federal estate tax purposes. I could set up a, a defective grantor trust, have an, have a, uh, Another trustee in another state and uh, have them manage it. I could potentially avoid, uh, state taxes on those gains if it's not paying it out to me or on that income. If it's not paying it out to me, if it pays it out to me. It doesn't matter. But if I just put it in there and let's say it's just, I'm just going to invest it in securities and I don't want to, I just want to make sure that it's protected in the event that somebody ever comes after me or, you know, let's say I have a bunch of teenagers and I'm worried, like, what if one of them has a car accident or hurts somebody or does something and I'm, and I'm liable, this makes it next to impossible for them to reach that asset. Although 99% of the time, the LLC is going to be just fine. They can't take that away from you either. They can get a lien against it. That's it. Right. In California, do you change the title of a house to a trust or land trust without causing an increase in property taxes? The answer, real simple question is yes, they're going to see that you're still the beneficiary of it. It's where where California nails you is on the change of a beneficial uh, interest holder, the person who gets to occupy it. And so if if I have a property in LLC and I give you more than 50% of its units, I'm going to probably reassess. If I sell a property to somebody else, even if I sell them the beneficial interest in a land trust, that's a transfer. But if it's just me, that's not a transfer for purposes of reassessment. There is the new proposition that came out this last year. If you're going to make something into an investment property, it's going to, you're going to have to reassess it when, when the primary beneficiary of this passes away, but the county just asks to see the documents. Usually they just want to see the provision that says you're still the beneficiary and you still have beneficial use of the property. How can a large capital gains and recaptured depreciation be reduced? So they, somebody says, I received bad advice about selling an asset and made too much money this year as a realtor. So the, the only thing you could really do other than using offsets, like, hey, creating deductions here uh, by eat, charitable giving or by accelerating depreciation or doing something else, realizing some losses and something else you have maybe. If you want to uh, reduce capital gains, by the way, like if I have a bunch of losers in the stock market that I've been sitting on. This is the year that you take them to offset that large capital gain. Or you do something like a qualified opportunity zone where you have extra time for you. You probably have until next June to create a fund and then reinvest it. And then you're deferring that and you're going to have to recognize the tax in 2026 is when it will be taxable to you. So you don't have to pay the tax right away, but you will still have to pay it. Buy and hold property, how long do I have to hold to pay less tax when sold, 1031 exchange? Technically, as long as when you acquire, uh, realistically, the one-year the one stuff is BS. Nobody cares about that. What they care about is, is it investment property? Is it available for use? Like, is it something that is actually investment property? So let's say that I sell some property and buy a replacement property. How long do I have to to hold it? Technically, I could I could do another ten thirty one exchange in a short period of time, I mean, a month later, less whatever it is. There's no time frame. What they care about is did I buy investment property and exchange it for more investment property? So as long as it's investment property and you can document your intent and you buy it, and then you're like, let's say that you exchange into a property A and you don't like property A, so you exchange into property B is that going to be okay that that should be okay but you deal with a qualified intermediary the uh the 1031 exchange uh facilitator and you tell them what's going on and then they can they can they can advise you there but yeah there's not a technically there's not a how long do i have to hold it there's not this year thing it's did i relinquish real estate investment property and acquire new real estate investment property if i did then i can i 1031 into that new property And then am I releasing that one to acquire more investment property? If the answer is yes, then I can do it. We withdrew money from an IRA. This is the last one, guys. So I know it's been a a long session, but I I think that there's just a lot of questions. Boom, 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 boom. We withdrew money from an IRA to fund a real estate purchase with the intention of reselling the property within a 60-day window. The purchase took longer than expected. Now we're not going to close in the 60-day window. I have access to a former company 401k and explore option of either doing a direct or indirect rollover, or even a withdrawal to bridge fund payback of initial IRA until property resale closes. What tax pitfalls or complications are created by doing the indirect rollover or withdrawal from the former company 401k. So here's what's going on. Once a year, I can roll over an IRA to another IRA, and I have 60 days to complete that rollover. So if I take $100,000 $100,000 out of an IRA, I have 60 days to put that money back. That's what we're into. So there's a property that's causing us problems, it's causing us liquidity. Can I do another rollover and avoid tax? The answer is no. So I can't go do another 60-day rollover. You can do once a year. And I think that the fact that you just did one and then you're going to do another, I think you're going to, it's not going to be qualified. So the money that you take out is going to be taxable. If you have a 401k, what I would do, depending on the amount of money, is I'd probably roll that into a solo 401k off of one of your businesses, which you can do, and then borrow the money. You can borrow up to 50% of that, uh, up to $100,000 between a married couple. So if you need money to give yourself a tide over, technically you could borrow that money. And then I would use that money or any other money you have lying around to put into your IRA so it's not taxable. If you do not do that, then it's not like the deal blows up. You just have a taxable distribution. So depending on how old you are, you're going to end up paying a 10% penalty in income tax on that IRA. That's all it is. Uh If it was a Roth, then I don't think you, uh, you're you going to be paying the penalty. Uh, you've already paid the tax. Uh, I think you might pay tax on the gain. I can't remember what the penalties are in a Roth. I'd have to go look it up for early withdrawal. Generally speaking, I don't, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I can't remember. I'd have to go look it up. But you'd have some penalties for sure. So I wouldn't do that. So what I would do is again, I would roll over the monies and see if I can't borrow them from my own 401k. If you are allowed to, you could talk to the administrator of your former company 401k. Usually they roll that into an IRA. So the fact that it's still sitting in there, you might be able to borrow the monies from that or you roll it into a solo 401k and then borrow the money from that. You'd have to do it pretty quickly. It sounds like the 60 day window is really at a close. You may, anything you can get to put that money back in there, borrow money from somebody else, refi your house, do anything else prevents it from being taxable. But if, if you talk to an accountant, they should be able to tell you what the actual penalty is going to be. And you might say, oh, that's not so bad. I'm okay with the distribution. You know, I wish it would, I wish I hadn't, but it's not like the deal blows up and hopefully you made some money on a resale. Real estate purchases. Yeah. So you, you, you sound like you flipped a house. So not uncommon that it takes longer than 60 days. And we tracked over 500 of them and they were 90.6 days with, with crews just churning and about a 15% average profit. I don't do them anymore for that reason. It's like, it's a lot of work for not a lot of benefit. It's better just to buy and hold. But if, if you made some money on it, fantastic you may have a little penalty here for uh, not getting that money back in there, but maybe you have some other options. Maybe you're able to get that money quickly out of the 401k in the form of borrowing it. If you withdraw it from the 401k and put it back in, all you did is you traded one penalty for another. So it's the same penalty. So it doesn't matter. And that's it. Hopefully you guys got a lot out of this. Uh, I know that I went a little long and had a lot of questions. I actually kind of like that, but uh, if, if there's anything that you need on a clarity by all means, send it in at tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Send in your question or if you need, uh, something, uh, clarified again, send it on in there and, uh, we'll make sure to address it. In the meantime, this is the last tax Tuesday before the holidays. So happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, do hopefully you're able to spend time with your uh, family and loved ones and, and be, uh, be merry. And hopefully you're giving and thinking of the less fortunate during this time too. I'm not going to guilt you into doing anything, but I know that a lot of people do a lot of good out there. We don't need the government to do it. We can do it ourselves. Uh, the taxes are a way of giving you some incentives. Uh, again, if you're charitably inclined, those, those charities and setting up foundations is a great way to create something that's a legacy for your family, but also get a bunch of tax benefits. They're there for a reason, a lot of incentives. Again, any questions, shoot them on in. Otherwise, have a great holiday season. And again, you could still be doing the Q&A um, our guys should be answering questions all throughout this, so you can certainly go to the Q&A and get your question answered right now. And uh, if you're impatient, otherwise, do the Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at AndersonAdvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.